Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of really interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, leave a review. A number of the apps let you give us a certain number of stars or even write a review. Apple lets you write a review. Spotify lets you rate us. Some of them like CastBox, you can leave comments. Either way, give us a good rating and review, whichever app you're on. It really does help us in the rankings and helps us get discovered by others. Actually, our guest today might be able to tell me exactly how that works, but no, I'm just kidding. I won't put that on our, our, our guest, <laughs> but we'll be able to get, when, when you rank us, it helps us get discovered by others. We'd love to be part of the kinds of conversations like the one we are having today with Kyle Williams. Kyle Williams is a senior data scientist at Decision Desk HQ. Decision Desk HQ collects, organizes, and reports election night results and provides election-related data to media outlets, political organizations, and really anyone interested in who votes and how they voted. Kyle specifically performs electoral analysis, polling, and manages data operations at DDHQ. And Kyle has an undergrad degree in physics and math and went on to get his PhD in physics as well. And that's a lot, man. So thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you you know, coming to hang out with the, uh, the plebes, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> you don't give yourself enough credit. No, thank you so much for, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I am curious when I was looking at a little bit about your background, why you, like what prompted you to go into math and physics as an undergrad and then continue your studies and get your PhD in physics? Sure. No. So when I was uh, really young, when I was 11 or 12, I suppose, I was really into math, especially back then. And, uh, you know, it was something I felt I had some natural affinity for that I enjoyed. And uh, I think, you know, if, you go, if I go back to when I was 11, 12, I wanted to be a math professor back then. Um, and then as I became a teenager, I got more into science and started thinking to myself, oh, how can I combine uh, math and uh, studying the natural sciences and the natural world together to use mathematical tools to figure out how the natural world behaves? Um, and then I think you know, goodness, I'd have to ask my parents. But by the time I was 13 or 14, I think I was pretty dead set on the physics PhD path. Um, and so I spent my whole adolescence um, running down, uh, trying to get a physics PhD and figure out how do I how do I achieve that? And then, you know, ultimately got double major and I was an undergrad in math and physics at Guilford College, which is an amazing, amazing, very, very small institution in Greensboro in central North Carolina. Go Quakers. And uh, then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> had to get that in there. Fight, fight, inner light. Go Quakers kill. I kid you not. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. And uh, then I went on to graduate school at the University of Illinois, where uh, my research group was about the same size as the Guilford College Physics Department in totality. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
And um, so then I spent about seven years there studying computational physics and um, learning a lot about physics and how to combine that with computer science and different algorithmic techniques. And so that is sort of at a very high level what my occupational academic background <laughs> looked like. And I, I would not fault you at all if you were to hear any of that and ask yourself, what on earth does that have to do with politics or elections? Well, so. I'll get to that, but I'm so curious. So 11, 12, 13, 14 is when you really started getting interested and in, in carving out a lane for yourself saying PhD is the way is the way that you were going. Were you reading certain books? Were, did you kind of stumble upon uh, a brief history of the universe kind of a thing? And, and that's how it, it, it piqued your interest at such a young age? Or how did that all come about? Uh, so I remember, I think I actually read, if you're familiar with the name Brian Greene, I think when I was that age, I read The Elegant Universe. I think my uncle gave me a copy of The Elegant Universe um, by, by Brian Greene, which I read many, many years ago. And I think I read... Um, I think I read Brief History of Time shortly after that. But I think actually even more than reading those books was I just sort of like liked math. Um, I, I remember I didn't like, you know, learning basic arithmetic in elementary school. I thought it was boring. But uh, by the time I got to algebra and, tri and trigonometry and calculus, I, I really liked that a lot and uh, started learning about that and asking, you know, how does this get applied elsewhere and how can I use this ultimately to further my education and, and further further my career? Um, my parents were very encouraging in those directions. They're like, Cal calculus, sure, we're, we're down with that. And so that's sort of how, uh, you know, how I ended up going in that direction when I was a teenager. I wasn't good at athletics. So. <laughs> yeah. It seems like the, the creative mathematicians, the creative scientists end up uh, gravitating, if you will, towards physics. But there, there have been a couple of books over the years that, you know, Hawking's book, which we already mentioned, or there was one that really captured my attention. It was written in the mid-90s, I want to say, uh, the, the God Particle which uh, the author, I think Liederman is the author. Uh, and he says later on, he he wished he he named that book the goddamn particle because it was the, the particle that just evaded them. And then when they finally discovered it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is when they finally discovered that, was it like the eighth quark or something like that? Yeah, the the Higgs boson, the, uh, so, so this is- The I, Higgs I, boson, I, the, yeah. is that right? Yeah, I, so I should quickly say there are any there are probably like actual working physicists who are listening to this. If my if my doctoral advisor is listening to this, I offer my apologies. But you know, <laughs> this, and I haven't thought about any of this stuff in a long, long time now. But you know, basically there was a standard model of particle physics that sort of said, well, there should be leptons, which are particles like electrons, and there are particles called quarks. You've probably heard the name the word quark before. Essentially, those are like the smaller subatomic particles that compose things like protons and neutrons. And there was this beautiful mathematical structure called the standard model that sort of uh, gave some sense of how all of these particles fit together to create bigger particles like protons and neutrons that compose our observable world. And one of the predictions of this model was that there's should exist something called the Higgs boson um, as one of these smaller particles. And for a long time, uh, you know, theoretically, it looked like this particle had to exist if the rest of this theory was valid. And it was really frustrating to physicists, um, experimentalists at this time period, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I want to say, they couldn't find this because like, oh, we really have this theory we like and we can't find this particle. And then, uh, you know, eventually they built the Large Hadron Collider in Europe yeah. and did find it. I remember the, the uh, I'm going to butcher the timeline a little bit. So this was back all the way in my academic days. So summer of 2012, I want to say when, when Obama was running for re-election, I was working at um, Cornell's particle accelerator that summer. And I remember being in uh, in the room that summer and everybody was all excited when uh, the announcement came down that, that they found it. I remember there was a guy who came in holding up like a newspaper. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, but I, now correct me if I'm wrong in this, uh, if I remember this incorrectly, but the process by which they actually discovered it, that particle empirically 
they discovered that there were subparticles underneath that. So they had to basically start all over again. Is that, do I, do I remember that right? Or, or was the eighth quark, the, the end all be all, so to speak. So, so I should say like the Higgs boson is not uh, not a quark that you can oh, imagine okay. that, uh, that the world is um, composed of what we call like fundamental forces. So yeah. according to the standard model, there are these fundamental forces um, that uh, you know, everything else is related to one of those fundamental forces. So what do I mean by that? So I mean things like gravity is a fundamental force. And I mean things like um, like the force that hold quarks together in protons are fundamental forces. It's called the strong nuclear force. Um, there are other fundamental forces like the weak nuclear force that facilitates radioactivity. Electromagnetism is another fundamental force. And there are particles that facilitate uh, these fundamental forces, for example. So photons are the particle that facilitate the electromagnetic fundamental force. Um, and the Higgs boson is one of those particles that facilitates these forces. Um, and the standard model said that these particles like had to exist, essentially, if you believe the standard model. And that's why discovering empirically the Higgs boson was so important, that that mm. was a major experimental validation of the standard model. And I, I should say, I'm terrified talking about this because I have not thought about this in like five years. <laughs> but I could see where it was formative. It, it must have been formative in your thinking. So I'm, I'm picturing you watching election returns and applying some of this thinking. You know, you, you can't, you can't, yeah. uh, gravity always wins. Uh, and you're just kind of a applying certain well, principles. That's one of the too. funny things, right? Is gravity is actually super duper weak, that it's it's way harder to, to tear apart two quarks inside a proton than it is to, you know, pick up a weight off the floor. And that's because gravity is actually a lot weaker than than some of these other fundamental forces. So give me give me the democratic or the electoral analogy for that. <laughs> that will really get you in trouble. <laughs> no, I mean, so 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 what, what this means electorally, Democrats can have a real struggle in Idaho. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. All right. So, OK, so that's a, actually a good segue. So um, how at what point did you start getting involved in politics? When, when was your interest peaked there? Sure, sure. So actually, um, when I was so getting a PhD in physics takes uh, a long time that I think median time to completion is is six or seven years. And I was really blessed that over the course of graduate school, I, I learned a lot. I didn't actually work with um, any part of the particle physics stuff we just talked about. I worked in computational physics. So learning about different and analyzing different numerical methods to try and solve essentially some of the underlying equations that drive material science. Um, and so about five, six years in, you know, I was learning a lot. I was making good progress, but I think I'd also learned that probably academia wasn't my, my future necessarily, that uh, I had decided to, you know, I think I was starting to think about moving on into the private sector or to something else. And um, you know how some people uh, get really into baseball or really into football. They learn all the players' names, all the player statistics, and that becomes like their, their big hobby. So my big hobby circa year three, four or five of grad school was uh, just looking up uh, lots of old historic election results. And anytime I was procrastinating from the physics research I was supposed to be doing, um, you know, I'd be going through old election results, old electoral returns, looking at old election maps. How far back did you go? Did you go like historically or? Oh, so if you go back far enough, it's tough to find stuff. But, you know, if you, if you want to find like house results from Idaho, from uh, I guess Idaho wasn't a state yet, but like South Carolina in the 1820s, it's actually sometimes even hard to find that stuff. But going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, that sort of time period is what I looked at, um, what I looked at a lot um, and just got really interested in that and became sort of an obsessive hobbyist, I guess you might say. I wonder if algorithmic models would apply to uh, 
Tammany Hall elections. <laughs> How do you account well, for uh, you know the different uh, you know unknown factors in that one? Well, 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 you, you joke, you joke, but you know, and I'm sure we're going to talk about more about models and modeling methodology later in our conversation, but. A lot of it comes down, if you're building a model of an election, how did that congressional district or how did that state vote previously? And if you're trying to understand the congressional district of voting behavior of uh, 19th century uh, New York City, you'd say, well, this seems to be a really democratic area, irrespective of the national environment. I bet it will continue to be very democratic, irrespective of the national environment. Uh, and that's sort of like almost how you can think about it, that a model doesn't know, oh, Tammany Hall is like really corrupt and they're handing yeah. out bribes. But the model does know that voting behavior in this area is extremely inelastic. Okay. So you bring up a really interesting point and it's been just a stick, like it's been a, it's, it, it's stuck in my craw. I don't know if that's the right expression, but you know what I mean? Um, that the, since we've been talking about the midterms, uh, most pundits will start with this historical data point that the first midterm of a new president uh, usually goes against, uh, very much against the party in favor. But that's just taking an isolated historic data point and ignoring a lot of the other factors. To what degree should we weigh uh, historic precedent, especially historic precedent that isn't um, isn't uniform. In other words, there have indeed been exceptions in a first term president's uh, for first midterm. So to, to what degree should we uh, accept that as one of, if not the most dominant uh, factor to consider in this upcoming election? So you bring up something that I think is really useful in terms of thinking about American electoral dynamics on this two-year to four-year cycle that we are sort of chained to. And you reference what I almost jokingly, although not quite jokingly, tell people is one of the seemingly the iron laws of modern American elections, which is that the president's party gets hammered in their midterm elections. That uh, you know, if you go back and look, 2018, Donald Trump was president, Republicans were hammered. 2014, Barack Obama was president. Democrats got hammered. 2010, Barack Obama was president. Democrats got hammered. 2006, George W. Bush was president. Republicans got hammered. There are only a handful of exceptions to this rule since World War II. You know, if you want to think about sort of modern American electoral landscape starts roughly at World War II, that's debatable. But let's just say that for argument. There are only a handful of exceptions to that. You know, one of them is 2002. Republicans didn't get destroyed in 2002 in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. But really, aside from that, there are not a lot of examples that it seems to be very much the case. Political scientists use this word thermostatic public opinion that uh, a president comes into office and then uh, voters begin to sort of attribute whatever problems they perceive either economically or socially onto whichever party is in control in the White House. And it becomes very, very challenging for the president's party to make the argument to voters to expand their congressional majorities or expand their legislative strength. That if you go back to you know, 1994, Bill Clinton was president. Democrats were crushed. 1996, Democrats were not crushed quite as bad um, in the wake of some of the impeachment stuff, but they didn't do very well either. Um, when Ronald, we think today of Ronald Reagan as a very successful president. In his midterm elections in 1982 and 1986, Republicans did not do very well there either. Um, and uh, again, I think this has to do fundamentally, and this is something political scientists actually invest uh, a lot of energy into thinking about. Why does it seem to be so consistently the case that the president's party cannot do well, seemingly, when their president controls the White House? And I think it has to do a lot with voters attributing whatever problems they are unhappy with at that given time, projecting that onto the president and by corollary to that, their party more broadly. That's interesting. So there is 
uh, qualitative thinking behind that position. I mean, the numbers don't lie to your point. O2 was was the exception that I can think of uh, in recent history when that didn't happen. But there's actually sociological thinking going on there as to, to attribute why that is, as opposed to just looking at that one data point and as a knee-jerk reaction saying, oh, well, it's going to, that um, that historical pattern is, is, is going to repeat. So getting back to your, um, your own background, did you originally planned to get into politics or is that something oh. <laughs> opportunities arose organically in, in, while you were, cause I, I saw you were writing essays and stuff while you're still um, working on your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. So actually this is where decision desk HQ comes into sort of enters my own life story a, a little bit that um, I had started. I, I was sort of, like I said, an obsessive hobbyist a little bit by this point. And I was starting to think, you know, how can I become involved in a more clear way? Is there any way I can, you know, turn this into a side hustle a little bit? And uh, at that point in time, a, a fellow named Brandon Finnegan, who's the founder of, of Decision Desk HQ, um, you know, back in 2018 when Decision Desk HQ was quite a bit younger as an organization, we that he needed ground reporters to go to rural places, to go to county courthouses, to go literally pick up vote returns, to type them into a spreadsheet, essentially. Um, and that was how they got the results quickly from really rural places. And he would post on on Twitter, you know, hey, looking for ground reporters back then. And um, I, I responded to his message on Twitter and said, uh, hey, I, I live in Southern Illinois. You got anything? And he's like, you want to drive to Clay County, Illinois, three hours south of Champaign? And I, sure. was, like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, absolutely. That sounds like it would be so much fun. Um, and so, yes. Yeah, so the uh, the first election I remember observing what actually was the um, Connor Lamb special election in early 2018 was shortly after I'd gotten on board at DDHQ. And then the first thing I actually contributed um, in any like meaningful way was uh, I drove to Clay County, Illinois for the 2018 uh, Illinois primary and uh, wrote down <laughs> results from Clay County for J.B. Pritzker's first primary into a, a spreadsheet. And then, you know, after that, um, you know, Brandon and some of the DDHQ folks figured out that um, or learned that I had some technical skills, and so I moved on to some other things from from there, and became more deeply more deeply involved, and and did a, a lot of stuff uh, in the 2018 general election. But uh, then it sort of blossomed from there, and uh, you know I was very blessed and privileged to meet another number of other people who were involved at DDHQ at that time, and uh, you know I graduated from. Uh, graduate school, I guess, about two years after that, right in the middle of COVID, and, uh, you know, sort of blossomed into what became an unexpected career path. I I never expected to end up in in politics and in as much a way that I have. It sort of has been, uh, you know, very fortunate, serendipitous happenstance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I did a little bit of it, of this in the intro, but um, if you could, and I, I want to frame it this way. We're, so we're all, so it's, we, we just turned the calendar. It's November. We're all looking forward to November when we're going to, you know, see our aunt uh, Rhoda and our cousin uh, Sheila. And uh, they don't know anything about these numbers things and these, you know, polls and these what's these models what you got walkway models what are we talking about so tell us for aunt rhoda and cousin sheila what um what does decision desk hq do more broadly speaking as well as what do you do for the for the firm Sure. So there are a few different things we provide. The first thing DDHQ became famous for providing were just really fast election results that if uh, 
you look at some of the other um, you know places you get election results from, Brandon Finnegan, who I mentioned was the founder of DDHQ, he looked at some of those um, other uh, places one gets election results. He was like, this is this is slow. We can be faster. Uh, and so the uh, initial thing DDHQ did was just providing election results um, faster than than other other media sources. And that's still sort of the core thing we do is provide really fast election results. And that's something we are right now in the process of preparing for is providing the fastest election results we can uh, for next week's midterm. And then over time, as we grew, uh, we did things like uh, forecast. 2018 was our first forecast for the uh, 2018 midterms during Trump's president during Trump's presidency, and we did a forecast again in 2020, and we have one this year again in 2022. So a combination of uh, election results, provi uh, uh, providing election results, uh, providing a model to forecast uh, what's likely to happen in House races and Senate races, and providing sort of a holistic picture of what's likely to happen in an upcoming election. And then, okay, here's the actual data of what did happen as quickly and accurately as possible. So how do you get those election results? And how is it that other there aren't other firms that see the value in getting accurate information quickly. So I want to be careful that uh, sure. I'm not a, I don't want to attack other other. No, media. no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put it that way. But you, you, you know what I mean. Like, how, how do you? So how does uh, DDHQ get the information? Get the empirical information as quickly yeah. as it does. So the answer to that is there are 50 states, and so there are 50 different ways to get the information. That mm. uh, you know, we live in uh, the United States, where individual states are responsible for organizing their own election systems, and so the answer to that. So there are 50 separate answers to that question. 51, if you want to count DC, where we provide election results as well. And so you know, there are some states that have uh, systems uh, that provide data feeds that uh, you know we can look at and we can draw data in from quickly. There are other states that don't provide data uh, in as readily and ingestible data feed type format. Uh, you know, there are certain states where we have to have a lot of people on the ground. You know, again, going back to what I did when I first came on at DDHQ, uh, driving around, literally writing information into, and just, um, you know, writing information down and gathering it as quickly as possible and validating it for, uh, you know, as, for accuracy as, as quickly as possible. So, you know, that's one of the real challenges that we deal with in trying to uh, provide accurate results as quickly as possible is there's not a one size fits all solution. Mm. Uh, there are, there are 50 solutions and really there are more than 50 solutions because, uh, uh, within a lot of uh within a lot of states there are individual counties that we have to think about individually uh and so you know it's even if you even want to think about it at the county level that's something we invest a lot of time and energy into so it's not a, so the, the there are 50 different answers every state is sort of its own special snowflake in terms of what is the best way to get information from that particular state now my head immediately goes to how the 2020 election was challenged, but I'm guessing that is not the domain of DDHQ, election security and that sort of thing. But was Decision Desk HQ consulted on any of those dozens and dozens of lawsuits uh, challenging the uh, the results of, of the last election? Uh, so we stand by the accuracy of all the results that, that we report out, that um... – yeah, to the best, yeah, that to the best of our knowledge, everything we provide is the, the highest quality that we can provide and is and is trustworthy and reliable. Okay, so now tell us about the model because a lot of folks will look at Decision Desk HQ, and I guess the parallel is it fair to say a um, parallel would be uh, five thirty eight as opposed to looking at say um, Monmouth or specific polls. So you're different than. Um, than specific polls. You're you're a model. So just tell us about the differences and what ways a comprehensive model um, differs from polls. 
Sure, sure. So to answer that question, I think it's important to understand what we mean when we talk about a poll versus a model. So when I talk about a poll, imagine, for example, Pennsylvania. So right now, there are a lot of polls that are coming out of Pennsylvania because there's so much attention around that Senate race. So a poll is if I go and I try to talk to a thousand voters in Pennsylvania, I try and understand, okay, what is the electorate of Pennsylvania likely to look like? It's likely to be this percentage African-American, this percentage college educated, and so forth. And I try to talk to a thousand people uh, that has that particular composition and see, okay, you know, is John Fetterman ahead? Is uh, is Mehmet Oz ahead? Uh, how is Pennsylvania likely to vote based on talking to that group of people who I want to be as representative as possible? So that's what a poll is. A model is more comprehensive than that. At Decision Desk HQ, when we try and predict who's likely to win the Pennsylvania Senate race, we look at polling. We look to see what do polls say in terms of who's likely to win. But we also look at historically what has happened in Pennsylvania. What's the ethnic composition of Pennsylvania? How much money have those candidates raised? And so the Decision Desk HQ model is a holistic picture of polling, but also things, for example, again, like fundraising, ethnic composition. So our model might look at a state like Ohio and say, well, uh, Tim Ryan seems to be doing unusually well for a Democrat in Ohio in a midterm year when there's an incumbent Democrat who's unpopular. But also, Ohio is a state where Donald Trump won pretty easily twice. Ohio is a state that has, on average, a pretty low educational attainment relative to the country overall. It's a state that's sort of very white. And so if the model looks at those particular features and then looks at historically what's occurred, the model is going to say, OK, this is a state that seems like it should be pretty Republican. And then it'll look at those polls and say, well, based on these polls, maybe J.D. Vance is underperforming how we would expect a Republican to perform. But a Republican is still favored based on the historical voting trends in that state, the composition of that state. And that's why in our model right now, I think we have J.D. Vance is something, you know, we give him something like a 75% chance of a victory, roughly speaking, that the model is a holistic portrait of polling done in a particular race combined with a different uh, historical information around that particular place where the race is occurring. So a model is more than just a poll. Yeah. So uh, I just took a quick peek and um, giving J.D. Vance a 76.6% chance uh, in that particular race. Now, I would imagine the bigger the region, the more data you have. But frankly, some of the information we have, like generic uh, congressional polls, for example, I find are not helpful at all when we start to talk about individual house races. Uh, there are some others, and our our mutual pal Mike Madrid will say, "Tell me, you know, give, give me some other polls, like, um, you know, which party do you think is more extreme, for example?" But uh, so there, it, but uh, you know, it's hard enough on a state by state level, as as you just uh, you know used Ohio as as an example. How do you? How does how do you develop a model for individual house races? So when we talk about individual house races, so let's draw a distinction a little bit between House and Senate. So in a Senate race, we typically have a lot more polls that there are many polls coming out of Pennsylvania right now. There are a lot of polls coming out of Arizona right now. Those are two states where there are very, very high impact, important, high profile Senate races. Uh, and really in any given year. So this year, for example, I think there are 34 total Senate races that uh, are uh, that are that are ongoing. And really out of those, there are maybe seven or eight that you could characterize as competitive. Uh, whereas then if you go to the House, there are 435 House seats. A lot of candidates running in a House seat are, these are people who typically have much lower name ID, uh, that a typical House race is going to be driven a lot more by things like the national environment, economic indicators, 
matters than things to do with the particular candidates in that race. This is why we like to think about, nas about national generic ballot as something that's helpful, because you can almost imagine on sort of a course, uh, in sort of a course way that national generic ballots like telling you how high is, is the pool, that, you know, maybe something's a little different in Rhode Island, you know, locally in Rhode Island from in California, but the model will say, well, okay, you know, in, uh, in 2020, the national generic ballot was D plus three, and this happened in California, and this happened in Rhode Island, and this happened in Wisconsin. This year, right now, I think as we're speaking, the DDHQ national generic ballot is about uh, R, uh, R plus 1.8. So that means if you go and you talk to 100 people and you ask them uh, in November, do you think you're mostly going to vote for Republicans or do you think you're mostly going to vote for Democrats when you walk into the voting booth? Uh, by about a two-point margin, uh, Republicans are going to win uh, Are going to win uh, that particular poll, roughly speaking. Uh, now, of course, that's going to be different in different places, that California is different from Wisconsin. But it's giving you a broad sense of what the national landscape looks like. Is the national environment more favorable to Republicans, or is the national environment more favorable to Democrats? In 2020, and then especially in 2018, we could look at the national generic ballot and see, okay, these are environments that are at least somewhat, or in 2018's case, very favorable to Democrats. Whereas this year, we can look and see, okay, we have a national environment that is not particularly favorable to Democrats. And that's something the model can pick up on and say, well, this is a particular House seat that would not have been competitive in a year like 2018, but like the level of the pool is different. You know, there is more Republican energy in the pool than there is Democratic energy in the pool, as it were. So even though this district may not have been competitive in 2018 or uh, 2016, 2022 is a year where this kind of district would be competitive, that it's setting the thermostat for what the national environment looks like. So you bring up a really interesting point. So I just sort of flippantly referred to, I don't like the generic uh, congressional poll, generic you know preference polls for Congress. Um, and then you said that it could be a helpful metric. So I can imagine conversations between really informed data scientists saying, no, this is a good metric and we should use it. Um, no, it's not a good metric and we shouldn't use it. And then starting to get into a weighting, uh, W-E-I-G-H-T conversation. How do those conversations go about? How do you ultimately make a decision about which factors to use and to, to what degree they're influencing the model? Sure. So a lot of this comes down to looking at how things interact historically. So again, we have all this historical information mm. that is the basis for the forecast that we're doing. So we go and we look at 2018, 2016, and we can say, okay, in 2016, you know, California 25, the generic ballot was this, uh, unemployment was this, uh, the parties, the president uh, the incumbent president's party was this. And based on all of those factors together, this was the final outcome in California 25. And so the model can see all of those things and figure out, okay, this is the relative influence of this particular uh, of this particular attribute, something like generic ballot. And then we can say, okay, given that this was the generic ballot, this was the unemployment, this was the fundraising of each candidate, and this was the result, in 2022, we don't know what the result is yet, but I can tell you what the generic ballot is. I can tell you what the fundraising is. And so then based on what happened historically, looking at all of those things in concert, this is what we think would happen based on historical trends. So it's not so much a question of waiting. It's a question of looking to see, okay, when this was sort of the state of this race and this was the national environment, this was what happened before. Ergo, we should expect this year, we know what these national attributes, these national environment characteristics are. We know how much money John Fetterman has. We know how much money Herschel Walker has. 
Ergo, we think this is our best look at how these candidates stand relative to one another. So, uh, so just to, okay, I have a couple questions and I can't decide which one I want to ask first. No, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> so 538, obviously, I mentioned before, a very high profile one. It very, really came into prominence in the 2016 cycle. Um, are you able to see how other models are constructed? And then if you are, what are some of the differences, not just 530, I don't want to focus uh, too much on that, but like, what are some of the differences between um, DDHQs and other prominent models out there? Sure. And I think it's fair to talk about 538 because I think they I think it's fair to characterize them as definitely the most famous example of, of another uh, another group who are, are modeling the election. So and I can't speak in great detail about how the 538 model is, is constructed, uh, but I can definitely highlight some differences uh, to uh, sort of give a sense of how different modelers and how different organizations think about this differently. So if you go, for example, right now to the decision desk HQ uh, to the DDH. Uh, forecast page, you will see, for example, that J.D. Vance has a 76% chance based on the DDHQ model of winning that Senate race. And then if you go to the 538 website, you will see a different uh, you will see a different number that I think right now is somewhat similar, but it's pretty close. But I'll immediately draw your attention to a few differences. So if you go to 538's website, for example, you'll see three different options. 538 will let you select what they call a deluxe version of their model, a classic version of their model, and a light version of their model. So to just focus on the deluxe version of their model, for example, that's a version of the 538 forecast that incorporates what other for, uh, what other uh, non-quantitative forecasters elsewhere have predicted for those races. So if you've heard of Sabato's crystal ball, for example, yeah. they're a group at the University of Virginia, and they give their own qualitative ratings to these races. And then 538 actually incorporates those into their model. And Decision Desk HQ, our model does not incorporate those things. So that's an example of a difference between our forecast and their forecast, that there are features they're considering in the deluxe version of their model that we're not looking at, that we're saying, well, no, we don't want to be tied to uh, particular what particular forecasters have said necessarily, that we're just looking at uh, things like polling, fundraising, historical voting behavior, uh, and then, you know, hundreds of other attributes that are sort of along those lines. And the 538 has what they call a classic forecast that is sort of a bit closer in spirit to that. Um, so the answer to your question, I think at a high level is uh, there's a difference in terms of what feature, of what uh, sort of attributes and characteristics we're looking at. That the 538 model, for example, looks at these other ratings from other organizations incorporates those into their model, and that uh, produces sort of a different set of predictions than what you'll get from the DDHQ model, for instance. Right, right. So to pick on one specific, uh, again, I'm going to give a shout out to our, our pals, Mike Madrid and, and Ron <laughs> Steslow over at Politicology, and they often say the trend is your friend. So I'm looking at the chance of majority in the House. And going back to uh, the, the figure I'm looking at, it goes back to June 1st, the chance of a Republican majority was over 91%. And it has slowly crept down to now where it is today, which is just over 77% chance for the, um, the Republicans to take control of the House. What can be some of the factors that are um, influencing that slow but steady trend downward? So to circle back to earlier in our conversation, things like the generic ballot, for example, 
that the generic ballot right now is about our uh, Republicans leading by about 1.8 points, which is a pretty significant lead for Republicans on the generic ballot. That puts them, as you see in our forecast, in a pretty solid position to flip back the House of Representatives. Um, but uh, you know, over the course of, of the summer, sort of, I think you saw Republicans' national position deteriorate somewhat, that there was a lot of discussion, for example, around backlash to the Dobbs decision. So I think what you can see, for instance, is if you go back to way earlier in the summer, like you did, and you just told me at the beginning of the year, Kyle, Democrats have an ultra, ultra narrow House majority. Um, do you think Republic and there's an unpopular Democratic president? Do you think Republicans will flip the House? I would have said yes, absolutely. But then, as the year went through, uh, you know, events happened. The national environment changed in response to things like economics, gas prices, the Dobbs decision, and the model incorporates all of that information through things like the generic ballot, through things like fundraising, and sees well, okay, actually, Republicans are still strong favorites to win, but you have a better sense of where the electorate actually stands relative to where we were at the beginning of the year. Okay. So bigger picture is is the the model, I'm referring to it as this thing, like a big monster, you know, uh, but is, is the model an evolving tool? And if so, um, how, how do you address different aspects of it in order to make it a more accurate um, tool for projection. Is that the right the right vocabulary? Uh, sure, sure, yeah. So you could imagine, uh, you know, and I actually like that language of, you know, the model is this big living monster because the model is absolutely a living, breathing organism until at least November 9th. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we update the model every day in response to whatever new information we get. And again, when I say new information, uh, you know, we get new polls, especially being this close to the election constantly. And we incorporate those into the model. But every time there's a new poll that shows Fetterman up by one in Pennsylvania, that goes in. Every time there's a new poll that shows Christy Smith is leading by more in California 27, then You're you talk to my language now. Yeah. You know I'm California yeah. 27. Yeah. yeah. You know, that goes in the you know that goes in the model. Um when there when we hit uh you know October FEC reports, that goes in the model. And we and the model takes that information in and says, well actually, you know, I thought this candidate had no chance, but their fundraising is better than uh you know, is, is is pretty good. So actually now their likelihood of winning is, is greater. So the model's constantly taking in all this new information around national environment and candidate polls and fundraising and uh, economic data. And as it as it takes in this new information, it updates what's likely to happen. So again, to take an example from our, our model, if you look at Pennsylvania, uh, the Pennsylvania Senate race over the course of the summer, we thought John Fetterman was a really, really strong favorite to win Pennsylvania Senate race uh, over over the course of uh, you know earlier earlier in the year, but I think if you go for example to um, uh, to September, we had uh, John Fetterman at something like a had something like a seventy percent chance of winning. And as we've gone out from the summer and further into the fall, uh, Dr. Oz has done significantly better. Um, and a lot of that has to do with how uh, Dr. Oz's polling has improved over time. That a lot of the polling we were getting in Pennsylvania earlier in the year was really bad for Dr. Oz. That we actually at DDHQ were you know sort of scratching our heads that we said, well, it seems like Pennsylvania should be a really competitive state, but Fetterman's polls are genuinely consistently really good. So Maybe this is sort of a strange case, but as we've gone on, Dr. Oz has done significantly better over time. And I think now we actually narrowly favor him in our model by a really, really slim 
by a really, really slim margin. Uh, yeah, so it, it, say, it looks like uh, Fetterman is at 53% uh, in the model this morning. I was surprised to see that he's actually leaning in that direction. Now, is the governor's race, which is a, a wider margin in favor of the Democrat, does that influence the down ticket, the um, down ballot uh, Senate race? Uh, so just looking at it from a model perspective, the answer is is no. But you can imagine that we're taking in polls into our model all the time, and these things sort of are correlated with one another. So if there are a lot of people who are really excited about um, Joshua Shapiro, who's the Democratic nominee for uh, for governor, who seems like he's in a stronger position vis-a-vis Doug Mastriano, who's the Republican running for governor in Pennsylvania, that could have some uh, ancillary knock-on effects on the Senate race. So that's not something we incorporate explicitly. You know, there's actually a lot of uh, discussion uh, in political science, how strong are these sort of uh, coattail effects, especially when you're talking about gubernatorial candidates. Um, so that's not something we think about specifically. And, you know, I think that's the right decision that people think about Senate races and gubernatorial races differently. That actually, to give some aside about that for a second, uh, if that's of any interest at all, um, the typical voter is a lot more elastic in terms of how they think about state level races than federal level races. Um, this is something that's well established that right now, one of my favorite fun facts to point out to people is there are Republican governors of uh, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Maryland, and there are Democratic governors of Kentucky. Kentucky and Louisiana. Um, so when you and West Virginia, at- right? No, no, no. Kentucky, I'm sorry, not West Virginia. I, there's a West Virginia senator, but yeah, Kentucky has a, a Democratic. Uh, Joe Manchin, yeah, Joe Manchin is a Democratic senator from yeah. from West Virginia. But that is that's sort of like there are a number of examples of people really voting against the partisan gravity of their state at a state for a state level election, like governor. And there are many fewer examples of that for a federal level office uh, like Senate. That you can imagine, for example, and it looks like this is true in Pennsylvania. There are a fair number of people who are like, well, I'm not sure how. I feel about Dr. Oz, but I don't want Democrats to control the Senate. But for a gubernatorial race, I'm going to I'm going to I don't want to do Doug Mastriano. So I think when you you have to be really careful about these sorts of coattail effects, um, because, you know, how people think about something like a state level race versus a federal level race is, is really challenging. Okay, so just uh, to drive home a point, and we've kind of been talking about this already, but we're going to Thanksgiving and uh, we're talking about DDHQ's uh, information and the model with Cousin Sheila. What is a good way for engaged, interested folks to look at the information DDHQ provides? What is not a good way to think of it? So, for example, you know, uh, so you, you guys said so-so is going to win. You, you're, you're, your polls suck, you know, <laughs> so that's probably not a good way to uh, look at DDHQ. Yeah, so actually, I think that tees off of uh, like a really useful uh, thing we always like to point out to people about how to read our forecast. And I'll key into one specific example. So right now, we think Raphael Warnock, who's the incumbent Democratic senator running in in Georgia, who's in the fight of his life, our model gives him a 55% chance of winning. And there is a strong, strong temptation uh, to look at that and round numbers above 50 up to one and round numbers below 50 down to zero. And like, you cannot do that. Uh, That if we tell you that Raphael Warnock has a 55% chance of winning, like that's almost the same as a coin flip. That means if we ran the election 100 times, we think Raphael Warnock would win 55 times and Herschel Walker would win about 44 times. So you have to think about these things from a probabilistic perspective. Maybe an even better example is Ohio Senate. So I think we probably all expect J.D. Vance to ultimately um, emerge victorious in his Senate race. Uh, 
in Ohio, but right now he only has a 75% chance of winning and it's been clear in polling for a while he's been underperforming and our model gives him a 75% chance so like 75% is not 100% like I do not expect JD Vance to lose but one in four is not zero so that is the one big cautionary note I would say I had a conversation with a good buddy of mine uh pre-2016 that was giving so 538 was giving Donald Trump about a 29 to between 29 and 31% chance of of winning and I, I'm saying they're not saying Hillary's going to win. They're saying that Donald Trump has about as good of a chance of winning as Derek Jeter does of ha getting a hit. <laughs> you know, when he yeah. comes up to these lifetime averages about 300, you know, so that's a pretty good chance, you know. So um, it's always interesting to have these conversations about how to understand and how to process the model. Um, yeah, 55% chance does not mean 100% chance that he's going to win. So we have to understand that. And and even now, if you talk to, you know, Nate Silver, he will he will bring this up all the time that I think, you know, again, this is the number I, I think I have, I have memorized that on the eve of the election in 2016, they gave Hillary, like you said, I believe about a 30 percent chance of, or about a 70 percent chance of winning and Trump about a 30 percent chance of winning. And that is maybe the best historical example I can give you of how like you can't round 30 percent to zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so let's take individual races. You, you already alluded to California 27. I've had conversations with uh, friends of mine who are really interested, engaged observers. Um, so California 27, most recent poll for this district gave uh, Christy Smith, uh, the Democrat, a six-point advantage. Uh, the same poll, I think it was Melman, uh, did a poll back in August. It was two points. Uh, so she moved from two points to six points in the most recent poll. Um, we see the financial contributions. This infra, So I took these notes down about a week ago, so I might be off with the financial contributions. But at the time that I was looking at, financial contributions and disbursements were fairly similar. Mike Garcia did have more cash on hand. Um, but we also know that the district, as it's now drawn, is a Biden plus 13 district. That's how it voted in 2020. But Decision Desk is still giving Garcia, at that time I was looking at it, I think it was a 59% chance of winning the race. I think we give Garcia about a 58% chance now. 58. Okay. Um, now, it should be noted that it was up in the high 70s as recently as a few weeks ago. Uh, so what are some of the other pieces of the equation that would lead to that conclusion? So I think the important thing to bear in mind about like a race like California 27, although I think a lot of these lessons are more broadly applicable, is our model looks at California 27 and sees, okay, Mike Garcia is a guy who has won in a challenging district multiple times that even though this was in a district that is, you know, pretty challenging today for a Republican, Mike Garcia was able to, you know, win that several times. And he, of course, is today running as the incumbent. His fundraising is, you know, pretty strong vis-a-vis um, -vis the opponent he's facing. Um, and so this is why, and also maybe even more notably, right now we are in a midterm year where there's an unpopular democratic presence. So the model looks at all these things and says, well, here we have um, a Republican running in what is today a pretty difficult district for a Republican, but he also has the good fortune of running in a year when the incumbent Democratic president is unpopular, and he successfully already, uh, you know, won elections more or less with this set of electorate, with this specific electorate, uh, you know, twice in the past. And so, actually, I think I would invert your question a little bit. I would say it speaks to the, uh, you know, partisan sort of quite Democratic nature of the district today. That even though he is a multi-term sort of uh, proven vote getter, he still has a chance of losing. Like that is itself what speaks to how, uh, you know, how sort of Democratic this district is today. That if this district was did not come from as baseline a uh, 
level, high, that high a level of democratic partisanship, Mike Garcia would be cruising to reelection. So the very fact he is not cruising to reelection is sort of the indication that this district is, you know, today quite democratic normally most of the time. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good way to reframe the question. I look at his his margin of victory. It was less than one tenth of one percent in 2020, and that's when um, Simi Valley, a, a much more strongly Republican area, was drawn in this district. So it's um, when I, when I look at those models, it, but also it's an individual district, so it's really hard to get um, data that's specific to this district. I understand that, but individual um, house districts sort of forecasting, you know, for some of the reason we talked about earlier, is challenging because in individual house as someone who's had to do them, like individual house level poll you know at different points in his career individual house level polls are challenging to do it's hard to get sent like it's really hard to sample a house district correctly so we don't get that many house level polls that uh you know the model really at the house is sort of determined a lot by historical voting patterns in particular districts how much money the candidates raised uh what does the national environment look like you know occasionally we do get as you indicated earlier uh uh, congressional district level polls in particular competitive races, but a lot of the time that's harder to come by when you're looking at the House. Um, so as going back to the Senate and, and trends, I was really surprised to see when I checked this morning that the uh, DDHQ's model is giving the Republicans just under, I think it's a, just under a 51% chance of taking the Senate. So that's the first time that I've seen any sort of forecast uh, indicating that the Senate is is going in that direction, but bigger picture, I'd love to I'd love to take go, again trends. What kind of trends have you been tracking with? Say going back to the conclusion of the most most of the primaries to now, um, help us understand kind of the shape of this uh, of this cycle. Sure. So I think uh, so. We have the House and the Senate, and I think the House again is a little bit, in some ways, a little bit less interesting because it's sort of determined a little bit more by national environment. And I think it's, I think there's less uncertainty there. I think there's a much greater like Republicans have a much easier job there of flipping the chamber. If you look at the Senate, you know, as you indicated, right now in the DDHQ model, we have Republicans. You know, it's very close to a coin flip of whether or not Republicans are going to flip the chamber, and that's because in the Senate. You know, every two years, only about a third of seats are up. And so every election cycle is sort of idiosyncratically determined by which seats happen to be up in that particular mm. election cycle. Yeah. And so what does that mean in practice in the year 2022? Well, what it means in practice this year is that really there are four races that are going to really determine who wins control of the chamber. And, you know, if you're in our uh, if you're talking to us internally at DDHQ, you hear us mention all the time, those four races are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, that basically to a pretty good approximation, if Republicans can win two of those, they are going to win the Senate. If they can only win one or none of them, they are not going to win the Senate. And so more or less what happened to first order is earlier in the summer, it looked like Republicans were not going to hit that. And so the model thought Democrats were favored. And as we've gotten closer to election day, and as Democrats position in places like Nevada, Georgia, you know, especially Pennsylvania have become more challenging. The model started to say, well, actually, out of these four really key states, Republicans have a pretty decent chance of actually flipping two of them, if not, you know, if not more. And that's really what's driving them becoming the favorites to take control of the chamber. That, you know, if you are sort of a looking at election night, and you're sort of thinking to yourself, how do I want to understand what's likely to happen tonight? How can I cut through the noise about who's going to win the Senate? I would encourage you, you want to look at Pennsylvania. 
Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. There's been a lot of discussion if you sort of read Twitter or the political press around other races like Ohio, North Carolina, Wisconsin. I would say those are sort of you know B-tier races. And you see that reflected in our model, that Republicans have a much stronger chance of winning those races. The, the four races that are really important to look at to understand what's going on are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Yeah, so that's uh, it's interesting because as I was taking notes, those are the four states that I set aside to keep as uh, bellwethers, if you will. But then I, I dug a little bit deeper, and it looks like Arizona is a little bit more akin to New Hampshire on the blue side, um, and, and uh, similarly Ohio and North Carolina are. So there's, you know, they got a each each state um, in Ohio and North Carolina, the Democrat has a puncher's chance of maybe pulling pulling something out. Similarly, the the Republican in North uh, New Hampshire and Arizona, uh, the Republican has a, a fighter's chance, a Derek Jeter's chance of, of pulling something yeah. out. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that leaves us with Nevada. I'm trying to get that right because because Ron always says Nevada, 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 oh, not Nevada. I think, I think I've been criticized for mispronunciation, mispronouncing uh, Nevada, Nevada, Nevada. Nevada. Um, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And I'm surprised that we're talking about Pennsylvania. I know we've been talking about it already. You've already given us some underlying uh, info about, about Dr. Oz and the, the nature of that race, but I'm surprised that we're talking about Pennsylvania at this point, especially given the um, the, the the way the the governor's race is shaping up in, in, that, um, in that race. So Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia are there, uh, to me, the, um, the, and far be it from me to uh, say, okay, so this is my interpretation, and, uh, okay. but uh, I, but I, I was actually taking it from the information that I was gathering on the site, so interesting stuff. Yeah, no, I, I think my sense is like out of those four, Arizona's the, the last one to, to flip, and then if Democrats are having a really bad night, New Hampshire becomes the seat that becomes imperiled. That if you're looking for a bellwether that Democrats aren't just losing, but are losing very badly, New Hampshire is the state that flips. Um, and to actually give some background around New Hampshire, if that's interesting at all, like New Hampshire is a state that if you think back to the Bush era, the Obama era, we thought about New Hampshire as the state that was really, really competitive. But once we hit 2016 and we sort of enter Trump era American politics, you hear all this discussion around educational polarization that prior to Donald Trump, having a college degree or not having a college degree was not a particularly strong indicator of your voting behavior. But post 2016, it is a really strong indicator of who you're going to vote for. That if you are a Caucasian person with a college degree, you are much more likely to be a Democrat vis-a-vis -vis a Caucasian person who does not have a college degree. And so what does that mean for New Hampshire? Well, it turns out that New Hampshire is one of the most highly educated states in the U.S. and, and is quite white in terms of ethnic composition. And so what this has meant is that New Hampshire sort of has faded from being a frontline battleground state like it was sort of back in the, the Bush-Obama era at the beginning of the, the 2000s, and now being something like a state that Republicans really can only win if they're having a, a really, really good night. So I would say, again, to echo what you said, the, the four top tiers are, in my mind, um, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, then Arizona after that, and then New Hampshire is something you can look at as like an indicator if Democrats are getting crushed nationally. Yeah. Now, in hearing other experts, practitioners uh, analyze what went well and what went wrong in not just uh, models like this one, projections, but also in polls, um, one of the first things they refer to is participation from groups of people that they weren't expecting. Um, you know, so in this election, do you think there is a group of uh, 
potential participants that maybe aren't being considered as likely voters that if they do end up participating in this cycle will re really change the dynamics of the race. Yeah. So to then reframe that in terms of like some some political scientist type language, like your political scientists sort of talk about this from the perspective of, of social trust, that if you look at states in the upper Midwest, what people sometimes call like the Rust Belt kind of states. So think about Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, these sorts of states, you know, those states, oftentimes a lot of these uh, voters with uh, lower educational attainments who uh, have in the Trump era become much more strongly connected to the Republican Party uh, and to Donald Trump in particular, uh, you know, it's oftentimes hard even to, you know, get them to, to answer polls, for example. And so this is why if you look at a year like 20. 16, 2020, um, when polls, especially in those sorts of states, underestimated Republican strength, a lot of it you can imagine that you know there are uh, real challenges around sampling groups of people who have low levels of, of social trust, maybe don't want to talk to a pollster, aren't even in a don't don't necessarily even live in a situation where a pollster can contact them. Uh, there are real challenges uh, around that, and it's crucial if you're trying to do an accurate poll to make your sample actually reflect the voting population. And so as sort of these levels of social trust have become predictive of who you're going to vote for, polling in some of these places has become very challenging. Um, again, to connect that to a particular state, in Wisconsin in 2020, polls really struggled to capture Donald Trump's level of support in Wisconsin. Um, because you know pre-Trump era, you could imagine if I have a low level of social trust, if I don't trust the news, if I don't trust sort of the, the government, that's not that wasn't like super duper predictive back then of who you were going to vote for. And so it didn't affect pollsters as much. But now your level of social trust is a strong predictor of who you're going to vote for. And so this is one of the reasons why doing polling, especially in some of these upper Midwestern states, has become really, really challenging. And this is something we have to, to grapple with a lot that I think, you know, really over the past six years now has sort of been a big topic of discussion in the political science world writ large. That's interesting because I think of a poll in Iowa that tends to have a better record in recent years and recent cycles uh, than a lot of others. So I wonder if that speaks to your point about social trust that that I forgot her name off the top of my head. And Selzer. So you know who I'm talking about. So is it social trust that she's able to, and her, her um, organization is able to gather more accurate information? So, I mean, without speaking toward like any one particular pollster, I mean, I think um, even if you look at like Iowa, for example, in 2020, a race we thought about uh, a lot was the uh, was the Iowa Senate race in, in 2020, that um, incumbent senator or now incumbent senator Joni Ernst was up for reelection in 2020. And it looked like she was in sort of for the, the real fight of her life, that going into election night 2020, we all really thought Joni Ernst might lose because there was a lot of polling that suggested that um, her Democratic challenger, Teresa, Teresa Greenfield, uh, might, might, might beat her, that polling there was super competitive. And we got to election night and Joni Ernst did not have a lot of trouble winning re-election. And Donald Trump won Iowa for a second time quite easily. That Iowa is another example of a state that, if you think back to the early 2000s, was sort of a frontline battleground state. You heard people talk about Iowa all the time as a key swing state. But as we've gotten into the Trump era, Iowa is another state that sort of has moved off the board. That Trump won Iowa pretty easily twice. That Chuck Grassley is on track to win uh, his re-election bid like very, very easily this year that we talked earlier about how New Hampshire is a state that due to educational polarization has become more democratic. Iowa is a state that's gone in the other direction, that as we've seen sort of educational polarization as rural Caucasian folks have become more strongly uh, affiliated with the Republican Party, states like Iowa have sort of gone off the board in, in the other direction. So I think Iowa is another example of a state where sort of uh, even in 2020, 
uh, pollsters across the board sort of underestimated, for example, Joni Ernst's level of support. Um, and, you know, that's why we were sort of surprised, I think, um, in the election world when Joni Ernst won re-election by, uh, you know, pretty easily. <laughs> so a few more questions. Um, so we talked about some Senate races that will be bellwethers. Are there certain House races that you'll be looking at that will indicate either, okay, the Democrats are going to have a surprisingly good night, or no, this is going to be the the, the red wave that um, a lot of folks have been predicting? Uh, so then I think uh, one district in particular that I've given a lot of, of thought to is, is North Carolina 13. So, of course, we just went through redistricting. And North Carolina 13 is a suburban seat that is just south of, of Raleigh, essentially. Um, this is the congressional district my parents live in. Um, that uh, This is basically, like again, think about suburban North Carolina south, uh, south of Raleigh. And there um, we have two, um, because this is a new district, there are two people who are not in Congress right now. Neither of them are incumbents. Bo Hines is the Republican. Wiley Nickel is the Democrat. Right now, we give Bo Hines about an 80% chance of winning. And this is the kind of district that if Democrats are going to hold on to uh, to the House overall, places like North Carolina 13 are the kind of places they would need to hold on to. And, you know, down, down the line in 2024, 2026, whenever, Repub whenever uh, Democrats ultimately flip the House back, this is the kind of district they're going to need to get back in their corner if they want to get a House majority based on their modern coalition of sort of highly, uh, highly educated Caucasians combined with sort of people who live in urban areas. Um, so North Carolina 13 is a House bellwether that, that I'd highlight. Um, that, uh, you know, if Republicans are winning North Carolina 13, not just by a little bit, but by a lot, that's probably indicating that the national red wave is rising pretty high. Um, some other races that are maybe a little more idiosyncratic, but that I enjoy talking about are um, Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District. So this is Western Rhode Island. So um, Rhode Island is a state that for the past 20 years has been pretty democratic and Democrats have held both of Rhode Island's house seats. Um, but Western Rhode Island sort of, which contains less of Providence, which is Rhode Island's main population center, has some like rural areas, doesn't have a lot of ethnic diversity. It's the kind of place that if you just looked at its demographic profile, you could imagine it trending rightward. Um, and there, there's a fellow named Alan Fung, who was the mayor of a uh, of a suburb of uh, of Providence who's running for that seat, who is sort of very locally well-known in Rhode Island Republican politics, and they have a real chance of flipping the seat. And, uh, you know, if you're a professional practitioner of politics, the idea that Republicans look like they have a chance of winning a House seat in Rhode Island is crazy. That, you know, I remember back 2008, 2010, 2012, Rhode Island is not a state anybody was talking about. So just the fact that we're talking about a House district in Rhode Island at all is a sign that, uh, you know, Democrats are in sort of a real hole in terms of their ability to hold the House. Um, we already talked about California 27, um, that I think, you know, if whenever, Repub whenever Republicans ultimately lose the House, Mike Garcia is the kind of guy who is very likely going to lose whenever that occurs. So those are just some examples. Oh, another one I like to highlight is um, uh, Iowa, since that already came up in our discussion. Uh, Iowa's third congressional district. So Iowa has four House districts overall. And right now, uh, Cindy Axney, who holds Iowa's third House district, is the last Democrat standing. Once upon a time, Iowa was pretty Democratic, and that is gone. That Iowa's a state that voted for Trump twice. They have a Republican governor. Uh, they have two Republican senators. And out of their four House reps, only one of them is a Democrat. And Iowa's third congressional district, this is basically southwestern Iowa, and it encompasses Des Moines. Cindy Axney is the Democrat running for re-election there, and she is really in for the, the fight of her life to survive. So um, where is that? Is that around? Where is that in Iowa? Is that Des Moines area or where yeah, is that? This is Des Moines. All right. Yeah, James Serpento, Des Moines, my Des Moines pal, my brother. <laughs> 
my Des Moines brother. <laughs> I'm calling you out, man. Iowa three. It's all in your hands, buddy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, if, if Cindy Axney is is uh, is surviving by a significant margin, then that means Democrats nationally are probably outperforming expectations. That, but if the red wave is going really high, you're going to look at Iowa three, and you're going to see Cindy Axney really getting destroyed. So those are some bellwethers for some interesting behavior to look at. California twenty seven, Rhode Island two, North Carolina thirteen, Iowa three. You know, something to bear in mind: most House districts are not competitive at all. That most Americans do not live in a house district that has any chance of going to the other party. That I live in Northern Virginia, my house district is not even remotely competitive. Um, if you live in, in most of California or most of the Mountain West, your house district is not competitive. But these are some places where you know there actually is a competitive dynamic that can tell you something about what's going on nationally. <laughs> yeah, no, just a, a couple of dozen uh, real, truly competitive ones. That's why I got so passionate about our house district. Um, it's it's truly a purple district, especially as if you look at the last returns. So you uh, uh, DDHQ has some great partnerships uh, dealing with the election. I'm a huge fan of one. We've had Ron Stessel on here. Mike Madrid is a he, he's he's been on. He's the first one to come on three different times. You love we love Madrid. Uh, he eats numbers for breakfast, as they say, <laughs> as Ron often says. So what are tell us about some of the partnerships DDHQ has? Um, so first, I would just say our forecast is publicly available. We're updating it every day from now to the election. So if you go to Decision Desk HQ, uh, decisiondeskhq.com, you can access our, our forecast and see where the numbers stand in all the key House and Senate districts that day. On election day itself, we have a partnership with News Nation, uh, with the television uh, television station News Nation. You can tune in there uh, and see all of our live election night coverage in partnership with them. And, uh, you know, of course, if uh, there are any other any other questions or anything you know we're always accessible we're really excited to engage with people on twitter so uh yeah so lots of different ways to engage with us and we have a really exciting next uh next uh i guess seven seven days ahead of us <laughs> yeah yeah so i i'll definitely put some of those links in the uh, in the show notes and um but i i did i still need to ask you my um fantasy football are you fantasy football guy poker guy like or anything oh. or is election your game <laughs> so, so, so this is the thing that this actually goes back to something i said at the, the start yeah. of the show it's some people get really into baseball or soccer or something like politics. Politics was, you know, my my sports. That that's uh, you your know, recreation. <laughs> that, I, mean, that, I mean, this is you know our our forecast. This is Moneyball for politics, right? You yeah. Know, if you want to think about it in that sort of way, it's figuring out the the math underlying. You know, who's going to win? Who's likely to win? So. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Well, I was I was dying to ask you what to do, uh, you know, in uh, various uh, problematic poker hands, but we could skip that for now. Did you have any questions for me? Uh, so I was going to ask you, sort of, how did you uh, get into the the podcast into the podcasting game? How did this podcast sort of start off? So I produced uh, a couple of other podcasts prior to this one. Um, I fell in love with the medium. I, I've produced theater and some independent film over the years. And the very first podcast I heard, and I can't remember which one it was. It must have been like a Mark Marin one. He he's a great uh, he's a great interviewer. Um, and I, I just fell in love with the medium right away. So I literally on the very first podcast I ever listened to, I started imagining how the medium could be used and something, um, the kinds of uh, conversations I found myself in, especially over the last 20 years have always revolved around religion and politics, the two areas that you're just not supposed to talk about. <laughs> and especially from uh, mid early early to mid 2000s i realized that there are very few specific issues that i am just absolutely passionate about as much as the way we talk to each other about politics and religion 
I saw that the way that people of different parties, Sarah Palin is a good example, as far back as 2008, she could not refer to folks from the other side as the loyal opposition. And I thought it would be important to create uh, to create space for folks from different points of view, from different backgrounds, from different professions and practices to be able to have these types of conversations where we're talking as neighbors, uh, where we're not demonizing each other, mischaracterizing each other. We're speaking about important uh, topics in a nuanced, neighborly, winsome way. So that's uh, how I got into it. I started just a little more than two years ago and um, really have kind of jumped back and forth. And some some of our conversations include both politics and religion, but for the most part, we'll talk more more politics and more religion. Um, so uh, I, I don't just, I forgot how you worded the question, but does that does that answer what you were oh, asking? Yeah. Oh yeah, for, for sure, for sure. I, I guess actually, so you've had a number of, of conversations with people sort of from across the political spectrum. What do you wish people understood about, about politics and the electoral process better? <laughs> Well, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is it's not so much about our elected officials, but the folks who vote for them. There are neighbors, there are relatives, there are colleagues, there are people that we see in the soccer field or at school. And the mistake that many of us make to our detriment, and and I'm not being hyperbolic when I say potentially to the um, to, uh, to that that will threaten our very democratic republic, is that. We think, oh, this person was an Obama supporter. This person was a Biden supporter. This person was a Trump supporter. And then we come to all of these other conclusions about that person just based on that one data point. And I, I wish that folks would see each other as human beings. I wish that we would give each other the time and the space and the grace to think of each other as, like you said, like people, my, my my people, I spent so much time in Bucks County, Pennsylvania when I was a kid doing theater and just getting into all kinds of trouble. And I know some of the people that I love there, some of them will vote for a Democrat for governor and some might vote for a Republican for, for Senate, that these ballots that we send in are complex little matrixes. Um, and we should give each other the benefit of the doubt to, to understand that we're more complex than what um, our favorite pundit might be saying about the left or, you know, all those people, you know. So I, I want us to, to look at each other and um, give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're human beings to see the humanity in each other. And that's what I'm trying to do. No, great. No, that's that's wonderful. <laughs> So just to put a, uh, I know you, you alluded to this before, but um, how can, say, say it one more time, how can folks find you and more information about uh, Decision Desk HQ and all the great work that you're doing? So if you go to decisiondeskhq.com, you can see our, our blog that's constantly updating with new articles at an ever more rapid pace as we get closer to election day. Um, our model is publicly available. You can go in every day and see how our likelihood of victory odds for John Fetterman and Mark Kelly in Arizona, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, how all of those are changing. Nevada, Nevada. <laughs> Nevada is one I want to highlight because that is not a Senate race that gets a lot of attention in the press, but it is very important. So I'll, <laughs> so I'll note that. Uh, and you can... Uh, again, we're going to be in partnership with News Nation on election night. You can look to us on News Nation for all of our election night coverage. Uh, we have a, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, that on Twitter we often, you know, we're constantly posting out updates uh, as uh, things happen in the model. And on election night itself, we're going to be tweeting out things in real time as quickly as they happen to keep you and everyone else aware of what's going on as we learn. Um, so, so yeah, lots of fun ways to engage with us, and uh, and we're all going to be very busy uh, and running on not a lot of sleep for the next. Uh, next <laughs> well. 
Well, I really appreciate stealing a little bit of your time, Kyle. And uh, this is a lot of fun, very informative for me. We got to talk about a little bit about the goddamn particle and, <laughs> and house races and everything in between. So uh, this is a lot of fun for me. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Really